Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Hey, have you ever thought about running for office? Have you ever just engaged in political debates, tried to change people's minds, tried to influence people? If you would like to know or learn how to become a better communicator, how to be more convincing in your presentations, how to influence people's political opinions, particularly if you want to run for office, because that's specifically what Roger Wolfson does. He's the formal counsel to uh, Senators Lieberman, Kerry, Wellstone, and Ted Kennedy. He then left that work and became a TV and screenwriter. He's written for Law & Order, SVU, Saving Grace, Closer, and many other television programs. He's a founder of this new group called the Writers Action Group, which teaches storytelling skills to uh, basically every level of the Democratic Party. Roger Wolfson is with us. His uh, website is writersaction.com. His Twitter handle is Roger underscore Wolfson, W-O-L-F-S-O-N. Roger, welcome back to the program. So good to be back, Tom. So, uh, you know, I'm inviting people to call if they have questions about how to be a more effective communicator. I want to get into this with you for a while here. Give us the main premise and tell us what you're up to. The main premise is that we have noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed, <laughs> that Democrats sometimes have a hard time speaking from the heart. To me, it's because Republicans during the era of Reagan and from then on have ceded the rational high ground. I say this is a proud progressive. I don't think that the Republicans, that their policies really make much sense. I think that they serve the short-term interests of the rich, and that's about it. And I don't think that that's really effective, and yet they have to persuade a lot of people to vote for them anyway. So they have to persuade a lot of people to vote against their best interests. In order to persuade people to do that, the Republicans, since I believe they have a hard time arguing the facts, Republicans have learned how to argue their emotions. They've learned how to just pick up their shoe and pound it on the podium. Uh, and as a result, they come off as strong and passionate and committed, while Democrats are left feeling like, well, what's going on here? We have the right argument. We have the right facts. We have the right statistics. And Democrats are left arguing from a left-brain place where they're trying to persuade people that they're right. So it's almost this like in the 1980s uh, during the Reagan administration when the Republican Party was almost entirely captured by the billionaire class 
and now I'd say it is entirely captured, that their policies moved from the Eisenhower policies of the 50s, where Dwight Eisenhower was openly, I mean, he ran for re-election in 1956, literally on the fact that he had added more than a million people to unionized labor roles and more than two million people to Social Security, right? The, the Republicans moved from that to basically a, a whole large set of lies, you know, that small government is a good thing, when really what they were talking about was... Controllers. <laughs> right, right. Reducing yeah, the administrative, yeah. you know, reducing oversight of corporations. Cutting taxes is going to bring more revenue in. You know, all these fundamental lies. And the only way that they could sell these lies was to do it with emotion. And so they got really, really good at that. Uh, you know, probably the peak of that was Willie Horton. What would you do if somebody killed your wife? This is really where this all came from. And the Democrats have been just saying all along for the last 40 years, all those Republicans are lying to you and their policies are wrong and we're here for you on unemployment insurance, we're here for you on Social Security, we're here for you on Medicare, this, that, and, the, and that doesn't work, is yeah, essentially what you're saying. And, and, and in fact, it makes it even worse because by imprisoning Democrats in their left brain, where they're arguing statistics and facts and points and trying to prove how right they are, Democrats come off as schoolmarmish. They come off as impassionate, not passionate. They come off as inauthentic. That's the word we hear so often when it comes to politicians, particularly in the Democratic Party. They don't come off as speaking from the heart. Right. And so, you know, my background, you know, I used to work for Paul Wellstone and Ted Kennedy, and it was one of the greatest periods of my life. These were the stalwart liberals of their day, if not every day. And when Paul Wellstone died, and I really felt like I, I couldn't work for anybody else. I became a television writer, and I kind of buried myself in Hollywood and then writing because I couldn't face politics. And in the process, I learned how to connect to large audiences. The first episode of television that I wrote starred Viola Davis, and it reached an audience of 9 million people, which is many, many, many times more people than if you added up all the speeches I ever wrote, even for Ted Kennedy, they didn't reach 9 million people. That TV series was called Century City, and it was canceled. And my next show was Law and Order SVU. So I went from and sort of an aspirational show, Century City, which was about life and near future, to a show about the nitty-gritty, harsh, dramatic tales of sex and violence. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not telling you that I enjoyed writing for that. It wasn't natural to me. But I will tell you that I learned how to connect to people. I learned what drives people. In the first episode of television that I wrote for Law and Order SVU, I think reached about 18 million people. And then I learned from that show and from subsequent shows like The Closer and Saving Grace and Fairly Legal, I learned how hard it is to keep an audience and how you have to grab them. You have to grab their attention and you don't grab them necessarily just with fear or sex, which are the ways that a lot of people go. You grab people with any profound emotion, any emotion. You grab them with with hurt. You grab them with heartbreak. You grab them with genuine humor. Trump you is grab grabbing them. people with hate right now, is he not? Well, and I think that that's the reflex for a lot of politicians when they don't have an emotional range. Now, you look at Ronald Reagan, better or worse, this is a man who knew how to connect on many different levels. Because well, he was an actor. He was an actor. He also read his lines and he had terrific, he had Peggy Noonan. He had really great people behind him telling them what to say. Right. But he also knew how to be aspirational, as well as fear-mongering. He also knew how to be funny. He had a wide palette with which to paint. 
Donald Trump has just about one or two things he can do. He does them supremely well. And one of the reasons he does them so well, Tom, is because of my industry. You know, we created The Apprentice. We built him into this mythological figure who goes down staircases and tells people that they're fired. We built him into that, and he followed along. He has, I think, right. stayed on just one track. Right. Um, yeah. And frankly, if he could read a script, he, he would be, you know, shockingly effective. Yeah, this is remarkable stuff. We're talking with Roger Wolfson. He's put together this group, WritersAction.com, the Writers Action Network. They're basically teaching people how to be more effective communicators. This is such a timely moment because now we've got, at least in the Democratic Party, you know, one of the most diverse fields ever. Lots and lots of people, you know, showed up and voted last year. I mean, you know, people are waking up. So if you have a question for Roger, and I see uh, Charles in Southgate, California. Do you have a question for Roger about this, how to communicate effectively? Well, I tell the people all the time, you know, and they tell me, well, don't talk to me about politics. But I really believe that, like, politics is, like, the main thing that can change our society. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to do it on a grass level. But I live in a Latino community. I would need some help. What's the most effective way to, like, communicate to people that you're interested in them and their community and their life? Okay, well, that is the ultimate question. I think that the most effective way to communicate that you really care about a community is to start by explaining your connection to them. What it is about the community that you do not belong to, assuming you don't belong to, I'm assuming that you're not Latino, or Hispanic, but if you're not, then what is it about their lives that connects to your life? What are the emotions that you experience when you see them? How can you relate it to your own experience? And this is important, Charles. It's not enough to just say, you know, I met this person on the street and they were suffering from discrimination in their high school and I felt bad, for, you know, it, that just sucks. You know, you, you can't just talk about them and their experience, you have to be able to connect it to your own. So you talk about somebody in that community who you have connected to on some level, and then you explain how that relates to your own life and to individual experiences in your own life. Can you tell me why you feel connected to the Latina, uh, to the Hispanic community? I've been here for 20 years, and I see people on the street that have no jobs, you know, unless they join the army or something. So that's your that's okay. that's your connection is you live with these folks. Yeah. Okay. So I think we found a, a point of intersection. That would be a stepping off point. Charles, thank you for the call. Roger Wolfson <laughs> is uh, advising us all on how to be more effective communicators, whether you're canvassing, whether you're running for office, whether you're just talking to crazy Uncle Ralph over Thanksgiving dinner. Chris in Ridgecrest, California, you are on the air with Roger Wolfson. Hi, Tom, and hi, Roger. Roger, I just saw a video last week on YouTube by Chris Voss. He was the FBI lead hostage negotiator, and he talked about a technique that he does when he's dealing with hostage negotiations that struck me as what the Republicans do and why they're so good at holding on to people. And it's similar to what you're saying. He says he doesn't try to get a yes out of them. He tries to get a no out of them. He tries to make them have questions where they answer no because the brain chemistry or something, when you say no, it puts you in a, a sense of security. 
And I'm wondering if maybe that's what's going on with a lot of Republicans. He used one of Reagan's questions as an example. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Of course, a lot of people are going to say no. And it kind of locks them into this false sense of security. I was wondering if you had any comment on that. or <laughs> That's a good one. I think that Republicans have profited from making us all discouraged about government itself. The more people are discouraged about government itself, the more it looks like a dirty business, the more infighting there is between the parties, the less people want to be engaged in politics and the fewer people vote. And the fewer people vote, the more Republicans win elections. So that is definitely, I think, the Republican grand strategy to make us all feel negative. That word that you're using, that word no, it's very easy to go to a negative place. And Tom, you're also aware of the idea of negative emphasis, right? Which is the well, yeah, I, was designed. I mean, right? there, there's the, you know, uh, George Lakoff popularized this with the title of his book, Don't Think About an Elephant. As soon as you ask somebody a question to which the answer is no, they have to evoke the answer of yes in their brain first to look at it and say, no, that's not what it is. You know, you point at a dog and say, is that an elephant and or, you know, whatever. And they, they would have to imagine an elephant to say, no, that's not an elephant. Exactly. So there's a lot of mental games being played here. What, what I just believe is I think that we need to have two parties. We have to have both parties. If the Republicans are going to do that, I'm not saying that Democrats have to stoop to any kind of a level. I never would think that Democrats should propagandize or manipulate. But I think that, they, that there are certain skills that Democrats need to learn so that they have these tools in the shed so that they can be effective. It's simple as that. And I yeah. think that what you're talking about in terms of negative emphasis and in terms of making people think of something, that's a tool to have. As long as you're honest about it, as long as you're open about what you're doing, as long as you're effective in what you're doing, I think that's a, it's a skill worth teaching. I'm a writer, too, um, or I'm trying to be. How can I get involved more with your organization? Just go to your website or... Writersaction.com. We're very focused on being a national organization because at the, our hope is that we can help every single Democrat who's running in for any level office in the country so that they can be as effective as they possibly can. So, so, Roger, have you thought about setting up local chapters all over the country? I, I think that is definitely going to happen. Sounds like Chris is uh, one of your guys. Chris, thanks for the call. Thank you, Chris. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Bill in St. Paul, Minnesota, listening on AM 910. Bill, you're on the air with Roger Wolfson. Hi, Roger and Tom. I have a question about a phrase I heard some years ago. Don't 
I don't hear it too much anymore. That's the dumbing down of Americans. Number one, is that true? Is it true now? And if it applies, how does it apply to working and middle-class Trump supporters? Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Well, personally, I think that the more appropriate quote comes from Senator Patrick Moynihan, who said that society continues to define deviancy down. I don't think that we're getting necessarily dumber. I think that on some aspects we're getting smarter and other areas we're getting more progressive. I think that society is branching off in a lot of different directions at the same time. What I do feel the concern is, is that over time we're becoming more complacent, more discouraged, and less likely to be engaged in issues. We we start becoming accepting of worse and worse behavior from our politicians, from our political systems, from our news media, and that to me is what's of greatest concern. Valerie in Dallas, Texas, you're on the air with Roger Wilson. I have a neighbor who's so racist, she actually said that... Be careful what you repeat on the air, please, Valerie. Well, (laughs) it's really frightening. I live in Texas. You can let me just imagine something like from the history and the KKK. And I honestly don't know how to talk to her. I actually became so infuriated that... I, I found myself going crazy. All right, Valerie, let me ask you a question. Are you by any, are you a Christian? I do not uh, adhere to any denomination. Okay, that's fine. I, I just asked you because of the regionality, and it, it, there is a high percentage, and because I'm going to quote Jesus here. It's the idea of loving the sinner and hating the sin. When you communicate to somebody, and also I think we can quote Martin Luther King Jr. here, especially today, which is that you know people can feel your underlying disgust. And I know I'm not getting the quote quite right, but when you communicate to somebody about how you feel, how their words made you feel, the key is not to be condemning them in your mind or your heart or your words while saying it. If you can distance your emotional experience from your judgment of them, then they have the possibility of hearing you. So it's called, you can look up more of this, it's called nonviolent communication. But the basic key of it is, what you tell this person, let me just explain to you, without condemning you, because I understand, I I know you to be a good person, I I, I know where your heart really most likely lies, but let me tell you how what you said made me feel. And then just be honest about it. It made you feel violated. It made you feel um, angry. It made you feel hurt. It made you feel wounded. And, and tell us now, that way, how did the, that person's words make you feel? Um, extremely shocked. Extremely shocked shock okay. that someone could actually think way in this day and age. Valerie, your phone is breaking up. I'm sorry. Uh, in fact, it looks like it broke up altogether. Sarah in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Sarah, you are on the air with Roger Wilson. Hi. Uh, yes, actually, my husband, when we talk, and I'm surrounded by my whole family, they're Trump supporters, and just as the last caller, you know, this is Texas. Um, but I get so emotional, and I try to express real facts, and he tells me that I get so emotional <laughs> that I lose everybody around me. Yeah. And they, they don't, yeah. they don't want to hear. Well, Sarah, your, your story is shared by so many of us, including myself. There are times when 
people who support Trump say things or do things. Like I was at the Women's March, a group of men mm -hmm. playing music, blaring on a sound box, came storming down with a MAGA sign, and it was so offensive. You could see everybody around them just feeling violated by it. But to condemn that person to respond in time actually wouldn't really be impactful. What is yeah. impactful, Sarah, is for you to really be able to tell a story about why this matters to you. And again, without condemning your family or your friends in Fort Worth, if you can really communicate to them, look, let me just tell you a story. This is why when the President of the United States says that he wants to grab women by their personal parts and he does it freely, let me tell you how that feels to me. You know, I feel yeah. violent. It reminds me of things that have happened in my life. Because when you stay in your personal stories and you just talk about what has happened to you, Sarah, you are unimpeachable. Mm -hmm. No one has to argue a fact against that. Well, you're wrong. They can't argue that you're wrong to feel the way you felt. You got also well, the other thing, political statement. The, the other Go thing, ahead. he says, I'm, I'm long-winded. When I tell story, when I tell what's going on with me, he's like, Sarah, you're going on and on and on, and they don't want to hear it. You're a perfect caller in the sense that you let me make a lot of really good points that I think everyone needs to hear. Yes, when we tell our stories, we also have to learn to do them with brevity. Because very often, mm -hmm. we're repeating the story when it becomes very long or when it becomes very intense. What we're doing on an emotional level is we're actually now dumping on the people around us, and we're belaboring a point. We are so much more powerful. For example, I don't know if you've been listening to this whole call, but sometimes I've used ums and I've spoken quickly. That's not really effective speaking on my own behalf. When I slow down and I allow there to be a pause, you see how much easier it is to listen to me? When my voice goes down, when I'm calmer, and when I'm to the point directly, that's another form of unimpeachability. Now it is very hard to pick on what I'm saying. It's very hard to attack what I'm saying because it's easier to hear me. Does that make sense, Sarah? It does, absolutely. Thank you so much for everything you do, and also, Tom, you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. So uh, good to hear from you, let's, let's see here. Um, Eric. Yeah, I'm calling from Danville, Virginia. Okay, um, you're on the air. Yeah, I'm calling as a first-time candidate. I'm running for the House of Delegates in Virginia in the 14th District. And this is the area to where it's a Democratic city in a presidential election, but in the, in the congressional and state races, Democrats don't show up to vote. There are a lot of Democrats that do vote here, a lot of them are Republicans, but they just decide to stay home from one election right. to the next. Yeah, so how can I motivate uh, people that don't vote in every election to come out and vote? All right, talk about what motivates you. Simple as that. Talk about why you show up to vote. Talk about why you felt compelled to run. You don't have to tell anybody else, hey, you have to be involved, or you have to vote, or you have to donate. Don't tell anybody anything. Just if you describe, Eric, why this matters to you, why you're giving up time with your family, and why you're taking time off from your job, and why you're taking time off from the other things you can do in your life, why does this matter to you? And if you center yourself in that, people will follow. They'll connect to it, and they'll feel more motivated and inspired. All right, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for the call. Tom, yeah. I want to commend you, because so many of your callers are coming from these red states. I'm inspired by what you're doing, because it really feels like you are providing solace, communication, support, and skills to progressives in areas where we need them the most. Just the range of the, where your callers are coming from and their backgrounds is obvious. 
And it really says a lot about what you're up to, Tom. Yeah, well, thank you, Roger. Roger, I got to run, but thank you so much for the call okay. and, and for the communication. Okay. Good talking with you. I look forward to talking to you soon, Tom. Thank you, Roger. Bye-bye. Martha in Winter Haven, Florida, listening on 88.5 FM, one of our Pacifica affiliates down in Florida. Hey, Martha, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I am as frustrated as can be by the lack of clear messaging from the Democratic Party yet again. Mm. And one of the issues that it's just crazy that the Dems aren't taking it and beating the GOP over the head with it is the deficit. The tax cut blew the deficit to historic proportions. And this is the party that just two years ago was insisting that any new spending that President Obama wanted had to be offset by spending cuts elsewhere. Isn't that convenient Mm -hmm. that principles for the GOP are so... You know, bedrock when there's a Democrat in the White House, and then when a Republican gets in, it just all goes away. It's the same thing that happened with George Bush. You know, Ronald Reagan began this great tradition of running massive deficits, but yet somehow managing through Republican hocus pocus to hang the Dems with the label of tax and spend and deficit spenders and fiscally irresponsible. And it's like the childhood taunt, you know, uh, I'm rubber and you're glue. It's yeah. exactly what's happening here. The deficit that we're looking at now has the potential to literally undo our society if it blows up. And we're on track for it to blow up in a terrible way. Yeah, if interest rates go up two points, the interest on the national debt will be greater than what we're paying the Pentagon. And right now, it's it's mind-boggling. It's far more than we're spending on all our social programs combined. And this is not something new, and it's not something accidental. This is a strategy that Jude Wininsky laid out in, I believe, 1976 in the Wall Street Journal, a two Santa Claus theory, that when Republicans come into office, spend like drunken sailors, run up the debt, and then when Democrats come into office, scream about the debt and force the Democrats to shoot their own Santa Claus social Security and Medicare. And this is a calculated, well thought out, well coordinated strategy that began with the Reagan administration. Ronald Reagan came into office. The national debt was $800 billion, less than a trillion. When he left, it was $2.1 trillion, actually. And they're continuing to do it. Our national debt now is over $20 trillion. And they just added like another half a trillion dollars to the debt, or they're intending to. And why? Because they're getting ready for the Democrats. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep. Make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to XChairTom. That's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com.
There's a lot of good stuff that I've written down that I just don't revisit often enough. And, and I hope this doesn't sound like me thinks he'd out the protest too much. But this is not like some, gee, I'm going to try and sell more of my books. The economics, for those of you who are writers, you already know this. The economics of being a, an author are pretty grim. If you've got a book that sells for $10 retail, it sells for $5 wholesale. The author gets maybe 10% of that, so that's 50 cents on a $10 book. And they get paid a year and a half later. So if I can stimulate the sale of 20 or 30 copies of one of my books, it ain't going to make me rich, right? It won't even buy dinner. So this is not about that. This is really about just going back and, and sharing things with you that I've done the research on, I've seriously thought about, I've organized into a coherent fashion. And the, the book that I want to spend some time with is a book called Cracking the Code that I wrote back in 2007 is when it was published. So I, I must have written this in 2006. And in fact, this was a book that we wrote on the air. We actually went through long rants on the air, and we had a person who transcribed parts of them, and then uh, I sat down with an editor, and we cleaned it up. And it's all about using neuro-linguistic programming in politics. And what is communication, and what is political communication, and how does that happen? What is the code that is used to make political communication effective? What is it that Frank Luntz knows that we don't know? What is it that the Republicans do so effectively the Democrats don't do? And how can we communicate this in really simple language? Well, I, you know, I wrote this book, Cracking the Code, How to Win Hearts, Change Minds, and Restore America's Original Vision. And it's got a whole bunch of specific techniques in it that I want to share with you. Cracking the Code starts out with cracking the worldview code. And I think this is the most important part. You've heard me rant about Hobbes. I do it a lot. But it's important to understand the worldview code. If you're going to try to talk to a conservative, you have to understand how they're thinking, how they see the world. Or for that matter, if you're going to try and talk to a liberal, somebody who actually has conviction. And I start the first chapter out with the story of a friend of mine, and this is a true story, a friend of mine who was in the media, who had been a conservative, and a very public conservative for a number of years, and decided he was going to become a liberal. And... When he did, the problem that he encountered, and, and we would particularly get into this in any kind of public, you know, he would, he would write something and, and people would attack it, or he didn't know how to fall on particular issues. The examples that I give in the book is, and I remember these conversations, uh, why are so many coal miners getting killed in mining accidents? And the conservative part of him was running off the old Milton Friedman, von Mises, von Hayek, Ayn Rand, Alan Greenspan theory, conservative theory, that businesses always want to behave in a way that is the optimal for their reputation, and therefore they would do everything they can to prevent coal miners from dying. But the reality is that businesses answer, you know, that's the conservative worldview, the, the liberal worldview from, you know, millennia of dealing with kings and kingdoms and nowadays modern corporations that are just kings and kingdoms revisited, is that corporations by law are sociopaths. The first thing that they have to commit themselves to is profit. It's not to the people who work for them, it's profit. And so the people are secondary. And this is a consideration not just by the corporations, but it's a consideration at law. And then the other one that I remember he got tripped up with, this friend of mine, was, why don't we teach music in schools anymore? And he was like, well, you know, it's like schools should be run like businesses, shouldn't they? And I'm like, no, that's not the liberal worldview. That's the conservative worldview. The liberal worldview is that education should be dynamic. It should be interactive. We should be teaching the Socratic method. We should be challenging children. We should be teaching them how to learn rather than 
well, if we're going to teach them how to memorize, there's some simple ways to teach kids how to memorize things. Teach them how to memorize. Teach them how to learn. There's a difference between memorization and learning. And most importantly, teach them how to think, how to critically evaluate things. So it didn't work for this guy to suddenly become a liberal because he thought he was just switching teams, right? Gee, I used to be on the conservative team. I knew all their bumper stickers. Now I'm on the liberal team. I know all their bumper stickers. But he still was carrying this conservative worldview with him. And to this day, I'm not sure that he's fundamentally changed his conservative worldview, although he still talks about being a liberal. So, I, you know, I talk about this and, and how it's important for us to understand where these stories came from, where these worldviews came from. What is the core of the liberal worldview? What is the core of the conservative worldview? How do we crack that code? And why is that important? Well, you know, obviously it's important for communication. And there's four stages in learning how to be a good communicator. We start out unconsciously incompetent. We have an, a debate with somebody, an argument with somebody, try to make a point. It doesn't get across. You, we're, I, we're, I'm not successful in communicating this to somebody. I don't know why. I'm incompetent as a communicator, and I'm unconscious of it. Then we learn something. Then you learn something. Somebody says something. You read a book. You learn something that causes you to realize, you know, I'm actually an incompetent communicator. I'm not successfully communicating my message to people. They're not adopting my worldview. So I must be incompetent. So you become consciously incompetent. You go from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. Well, that's a really important step because once you're conscious of your incompetence, then you start working on consciously becoming competent. So you start learning skills. And these are the skills that I lay out in the book, Cracking the Code, things like pacing and putting people in learning trances and, and matching, and, and there's all these different techniques and phrases, and understanding story code and framing. And you do that intentionally for a while, becoming consciously competent, and then after a while it becomes second nature, and you are unconsciously competent. You just naturally are a brilliant communicator. And everyone can learn this. This is something that should be taught in our schools first. Let's look at the conservative worldview. You have to understand how conservatives view the world. And this was first articulated in the modern era by Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan. He was the tutor to King Charles II, who was in exile essentially after his father's murder. Hobbes wrote this book Leviathan, and one of the things that Hobbes was doing was he was basically lobbying to get his protege, his, his child that he was mentoring, back on the throne. And the argument that Hobbes made in the book was that we need to have kings, and we need to have noble kings, because the essential nature of people is evil. And if people were allowed to govern themselves, then we would be in what he referred to as the natural state of man, and that would be a bad thing. In fact, here, this is an, a, a verbatim quote, which is often quoted in books on conservative philosophy. You'll find pieces of it in Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind and in writings of William F. Buckley and others. Thomas Hobbes in 1634 wrote, In such condition, right, without people being ruled by the iron fist of church or king, in such condition there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So that was a brilliant articulation of the conservative worldview. This is the natural state of man. 
And, you know, it stood throughout much of, of the 17th century, the 1600s. And his student, uh, Charles II, actually ended up taking the throne. And after three years, he, I believe he, he died. Maybe he was overthrown. But his brother, James II, was such a maniacal power freak that uh, the Brits kicked him out. This was called the Glorious Revolution of 1688. And before they'd let William and Mary rule, Parliament passed the first real British Bill of Rights. So this is interesting. Well, during that time, one of England's greatest philosophers, John Locke, wrote his book, Two Treatises on Government. And uh, he, by the way, had been the tutor to James II. And Locke wrote in his two treatises, he didn't believe this notion that God ordains good people and, and makes everybody else inferior, and he didn't believe this notion that the natural state of man is to be horrible. He said, man being born, as has been proved, with a title to perfect freedom and an uncontrolled enjoyment of all the rights and privileges of the law of nature, equally with any other man or number of men in the world, hath by nature a power not only to preserve his property, that is, his life, liberty, and estate, against the injuries and attempts of other men. So we can govern ourselves, and there is a right to life, liberty, and property. Now, Jefferson in his autobiography talked about how increasing oppression of the British led to the Boston Tea Party, which led to the American Revolution. In fact, just before the Tea Party, he'd written a book called A Summary View of the Rights of British Americans, which basically was saying, here's how to be a good British citizen. But then after the Tea Party, it was like, okay, we've had enough of this. And so Jefferson in 1776, echoing Locke from 100 years earlier, roughly maybe 90 years earlier, Jefferson wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So he changed property to happiness. And then he gets to the second part of that sentence, which is the most important part that is never quoted on Fox News or by conservatives. Here's the entire sentence in context. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, yeah, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and therefore we're creating this government. We are creating the United States of America. And that was a liberal statement. That was a progressive statement, as was Locke. Locke founded the, the, the modern, you know, with the Enlightenment in the 1670s and his two treatises on government. He created the modern liberal movement, and Thomas Jefferson was one of its most outspoken advocates, as were most of the other founders of this country, because we were a giant liberal experiment. In fact, George Washington called himself a liberal. He said, I hope America shall ever be at the forefront of liberality. So what this comes down to is one of the fundamental core differences between conservatives and liberals is that conservatives believe, you know, you hear them talk about the free market's going to solve all our problems. You know, the, the Paul Ryan, you know, if you just turn everything over to the free market, everything will be wonderful. They believe that the marketplace should replace government. That they'd say, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to, that to, uh, to paraphrase Jefferson, they say to secure these rights, markets are instituted among them. Right? That's not what Jefferson said. So conservatives think that amoral institutions like corporations or churches are morally superior to evil humans, whereas liberals believe that amoral institutions like corporations or churches or even government are inferior to humans. And this is a really 
profound thing. I mean, you read the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, it basically says this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. It doesn't then follow with, do create a free market. It says, do ordain and establish this Constitution for our new government, for the United States of America. So there's your fundamental difference. That's the first code you've got You're to crack. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Jim in Seattle. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Tom, I'm a black honorably discharged Marine. And my message, the reason I called was, I'm actually kind of glad that Trump's in office, and I'm glad of what happened on the weekend with the teenagers uh, wearing the Trump Make America Great hats. It just shows nothing has changed. As a black man who is honorably discharged from the Marine Corps, I have one message for every other black person out there. Until we get economic and educational parity in this country, don't let your children fight. Don't send them off to kill other colored people for white people that for four, almost 500 years, refuse to change. Yeah. We're not improving. And frankly, trying to kiss the butts of the elite or the whites in this circumstances, time after time after time has done us no good. We need a different strategy. And the strategy should be, you guys can't fight without us. When you come to our school, you're looking for grunts. When you come to our school, you're not looking for technical minds. You need guys actually on the ground. We make up more than a third of the guys that are actually the grunts. Okay? We're the guys that fight. Yeah. Nurse, you can't fight without us. We yeah, don't need it, to go. This is such a deja vu moment. I'm, as you probably know, much older than you are. And during the Vietnam War, this was one of the arguments that was being made. And in fact, I believe Martin Luther King referred to this on more than one occasion, but it was, certainly was being made, you know, in the popular media and whatnot, at least in the underground newspapers and, you know, in college campuses and things, is, uh, you know, don't go to fight people of a different race in Asia, you know, that that was a racist war, too, that Lyndon Johnson jumped into that war because he wanted to prove his anti-communist credentials, but he didn't want to be having a war with white people, and so he went to Vietnam, and there were people in the African-American community back then. Well, Tom, I'm 54, and I can honestly tell you, okay, I grew up in a black ghetto in Rochester, New York, okay? That ghetto is worse today than when I was a kid. Hmm. I was back in the summer. I don't see where things have improved over the last 20 years. Well, when you were a kid, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program was rolling out. Pardon me? When you were a kid, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program was rolling out. He cut poverty in the United States in half in 10 years. But we've slid back ever since Reagan. Oh, yeah. And the point is, and it's getting more and more fascist, more and more racist, more and more things against us. And frankly, I think apologizing for white racism towards us, those days are over, at least for me. I'm dual licensed in two different countries as a CA. I've got three different master's degrees. My mother's white. My son looks white. But my son, he comes home and he tells me, he says, Dad, as a black kid that looks white, as a crossover, he says, you should hear what I hear. You should hear what I hear. He's in a private good school. 
Okay, I mean, my wife and I are both six-figure income people, but I'll tell you right now, the conversations change. Yeah. What she hears when I'm not around and people don't know who I am are totally different than what she hears once I show up at a company function for her. Okay, Th- these attitudes have been there forever. I don't know if they're ever going to change. And I personally, personally, I'm not into defending the system anymore. I don't care if whites run it. I don't care if Indians run it. I don't care who runs it. We're not running it. So let's just get ours. Yeah, I got it. Jim, thanks a lot for the call. Well said. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think the most effective way was exactly the way that Nathan Phillips did it and the way that American Indians are doing, you know, doing their passive resistance. And he was the most pro-life person, even though he wasn't there for the pro-life rally. He was the most pro-life person. And, you know, that young man blocked his way. They wanted to leave because they were done with their ceremony, and he blocked his way of getting out. So he just kept drumming. And it's not just random noise that they're making, and it's not just random drumming. There's a whole religion behind that. Well, Nathan Phillips was chanting the official kind of national anthem of AIM, of the American Indian Movement. Right, but there is a specific religious meaning behind yes. the chanting and everything else that goes along with that. It was a, a, a religious ceremony that they were invoking there, right there in front of the Lincoln Monument, and I think that we just don't get that as a country. And I was also there inadvertently on the other end of the mall, and it was just a mob. I mean, I did not feel safe there. And I said to my wife, ironically, that if I had a heart attack right here, I'd be trampled before I would be revived. And I thought, well, how ironic, you know, that you died at the pro-life rally. But it very much resembled a mob. It wasn't a peaceful respect for life that I got out of, you know, just the feeling, the zeitgeist of that crowd. And I'm pretty good with being in tune with what that's all about. And the only person that I could see there that was the most respectful of life was Nathan Phillips. I really do believe that. And, you know, we have a lot to learn from people like him because they practice passive resistance. You know, I would have been with the other side, you know, making fun of the MAGA hats and just challenging them. Instead, he resisted by continuing on with what he was doing, and no matter how much they taunted him, he didn't fight back. Yeah, got it, He showed love. He did, he did, And, and that absolutely is the direction we all need to be going. John, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold 
ask for their free gold protection guide, and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. D in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, D. Hi, I did see that video of them harassing other people before the Native American. Right. Yeah, they were shouting "maga, maga, maga" at these uh, young women. And also some other words, as the C word and so forth. Mm. Um, and also, did you notice that the Black Israelites said "word"? They used the N word, but where are they in your crowd? And they said we have two ends. And they toss one of them out in the middle of the circle, you know, when they circled everybody, the five Israelites and the Native American, the hundreds of students, what was it, around 200 students or something? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I've heard that number thrown out, but just the kids surrounded that small group of people. And they tossed one of their classmates into the circle, black classmates, into the circle. It was so embarrassed, and they referred to them, yes, and we have two ends. It's like, that's your classmate. I mean, wow. they, these kids, I'm sure the grounds have cameras throughout the whole park, and they should probably look at their behavior prior to that moment. Yeah, amen, um, amen. And this reminds me of the brown shirts. I just, you know, brown shirts for Trump. Yeah, and, uh, and the brown shirts were a volunteer force in Germany in the 1930s. They were not, you know, official German army or anything like that. They were literally volunteers, you know. And early on, in 32, 33, 34, they weren't even being directed by the Nazis that much. It was this kind of spontaneous, yes, we support the Fuhrer stuff, which is essentially what these kids were doing. I mean, wearing MAGA hats, you know, just say, yes, I'm a maggot. That is a clear declaration of Trump worship, basically. And I think you're right, Dee. The brown shirts were, you know, Hitler worshippers, and and I think that there are parallels to be drawn here. Dee, thanks a lot for the call. This this is this is a low point for our republic right now. I think that in some ways it is being turned into a teachable moment. In some ways, people are learning from it. But when uh, I think it was Savannah Guthrie, you know, respectfully interviews this guy, that's not how you do it. So what do we do about the way that these young men, I was going to say children, but they were young men, really, from Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky uh, treated this Native American elder, and apparently treated a number of women who were walking by and others. Is the MAGA hat, this whole red maggot hat thing, is this the new Klan hood? Is this the new symbol of white supremacy and white power in the United States, masculine white power at that? It certainly looks like it to me. CJ in Minneapolis, thanks for listening to AM950. What's up? Thank you for letting me uh, get in on this conversation. First of all, my thing is is that they'll outgrow it. They always do. A lot of times when you see them acting this way, they think that they're doing the right thing, and then as the years go by, they fall out with each other. Who's the they that you're talking about here? The kids? Yeah, I mean the kids. Right. I mean the kids. I mean exactly what you are talking about. But But the biggest problem that we as the older adults need to realize that we have to teach them what, you know, the right way if they'll listen. A lot of times they won't even listen because they think they know what they're doing. I mean, I'm a grandfather and my grandson is in that same age bracket. 
And when they're not with you, you don't know who they're hanging out with and where they get their information from. Because a lot of that stuff can even come from their homes. Yeah, I, you know what I mean. I and do. Then, and then the other side, the other side of the coin is, is that the leadership of the country. A lot of people keep blaming Trump for the things that's going on, which he owns. But when you look at the Senate and the Congress, they're not stopping him. I mean, they criticized and blocked everything Barack Obama tried to do, and nothing got done. And the things that should have got done has poured over into the next administration, and they're still not fixing it. All they're doing is just playing the blame game. So there's where we have to change the leadership in the Congress and in the Senate, and things will get done. Until we do that, no matter who the president is, is this going to be the same old thing? Yeah, I agree. We have changed the leadership in the House, and they've passed now seven pieces of legislation to reopen the government. They're all being ignored, though, by the Republicans in the Senate. And that's the old school. Yeah. That's exactly why. Because the old school people, they don't want to see the change. They like the way things are, and they are behind Trump. Have you noticed that Trump, he's against Obamacare, right? Mm. Well, Obamacare is a nickname. He's never said the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, well, that's because yeah, the Affordable Care Act. There's an example right there. Yeah, the Affordable Care Act. Even Fox will tell you the Affordable Care Act actually polls good. <laughs> People like that. CJ, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Rick in Lexington, Kentucky. Hey, Rick, what's up? Thanks for taking my call. I want to congratulate you. You're trying really hard. You really are. You're trying really hard to educate people and turn heads. But the point I want to make to you is that I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Muhammad Ali was from Louisville, Kentucky. In the prime of his life, of his boxing career, white America hated him. I remember. I equate, I equate that to Martin Luther King, too. In the prime of Martin Luther King's life, white folks hated him. Now, both of them are held in such high esteem right now, it's ridiculous. Because it's fake, it's phony. The people that give him the high esteem that they do now know nothing about their life, know nothing about the trials and tribulations they went through, the battles that they fought. It's just easy to get on the bandwagon now. As far as the kids in Covington, I was one of the ones, I jumped the gun a little bit. I did. I didn't see the whole film, the videos, and I came to a different conclusion. They were provoked a little bit. But when you stand out in public with 150 white kids, mostly men, young guys, with mega hats on, the reaction that you get is the reaction you deserve. Yeah. Oh, well, and I think it's the reaction they wanted. I think they wanted to horrify people. Yeah. The bottom line is, you know it, I know it, white America knows it. If it was 150 black young men with Black Lives Matter hats on, or Malcolm X, X hats on, this would be completely different. Yeah. The conversation would be completely different. Oh, it would be and about the ridiculous. riot in Washington, D.C. Absolutely. And that's ridiculous. So I say to you, thank you for what you try to do every day. But until white America looks in the mirror and backs up off white privilege, until we turn into Americans, this is not going to work. I agree. Because black people, brown people are not going to go backwards. We are not. Thank you for listening to me. You're welcome, Rick. Thank you for saying it. Amazing. Kim and Okosi. How do you say that, Kim? Okoe. Okoe. Okay, great. It says here that you uh, disagree with me. You don't think MAGA hats are the new clan hoods. Why not? No. Well, I'm actually kind of offended by that remark. What's that offensive is, about it? Well, what's offensive? Well, it's offensive when you call out somebody who's wearing a clan hat, correct? 
Uh, it's not offensive to call out somebody wearing a Klan hat. Okay, I think it's, it's appropriate. Not, okay, if somebody is wearing a Klan hat, you're judging. You're assuming. But we're also knowing. Yes. We know what the Klan Just like if somebody's wearing a swastika, I would judge them. I would assume okay. that it's somebody who embraces okay. Nazism. Well, if it's somebody's wearing a Klan hat, I would assume it's somebody who embraces racism. And if somebody's wearing a MAGA hat right now, when the guy who invented the thing is in the White House tearing three-year-old children from their mothers and putting them in cages to show how tough he is, and, you know, goes off on these long rants about how people from Mexico are rapists and killers. Yeah, a MAGA hat to me says, I am a racist. That's what it says. Okay, well, now, to be fair, how is that not being judgmental and biased towards somebody wearing a MAGA hat? It is judgmental and biased, Kim. So, well, okay, and what we're saying is... Kim, if somebody comes up to you and spits on you, are you going to be judgmental and biased towards them? Okay, I have a perfect example. Before the uh, Trump election, I was victimized, harassed, accosted for my Trump bumper sticker. So how come the blame is only going towards the right and the conservatives and, oh my gosh, and blah, 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 but how come nobody is condemning the actions of the left because the left is correct here, Kim. If you show up in my space with a MAGA hat or a Trump bumper sticker, you're telling uh -huh. me that you endorse racism and hatred. That's what you're telling no, me. And you're going to get a reaction that, from me that reflects that. That's an assumption. And you know Yes, of course it's an assumption. Correct? Who else would who else would wear a MAGA hat except the racist? That is not true. Why who gives you the right to judge somebody else's beliefs. Well, not only do exactly we, uh, excuse me, Kim, not for. only do we all have a right to judge people, it's something that we can't stop. It's an automatic response. Whenever you meet anybody, there's an automatic, this is a survival skill. You know, back a million years ago, as humans were evolving, we had to look at animals that were approaching us and even others of our own species who were approaching us and immediately determine threat or not, friend or foe. That's an okay, absolute please. instinctive thing that fills the entire animal kingdom. You can never stop people from judging. And we all know that. And that's but, why when people wear things like MAGA hats, swastikas, and Klan hoods, they are telling people to judge them. They are proclaiming their politics. Judging with violence is immoral. Any kind of violence is immoral. I'm not judging advocating violence. violence. I am saying that MAGA hat wearers are advocating violence. Look at the violence that's being committed against refugees, mothers and children who are fleeing literally murderers in their own towns in Guatemala. Murderers, by the way, paid for by Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. They're fleeing these people, and Trump is going, oh, well, they got brown skin, they speak another language, we're going to take the children away and put them in a cage. Tell me that's not violent? What about... Is that so not violent, Kim? Violence, excuse me. No, How is that question, not please. violence? What's not violence? Tearing three-year-olds from their mother and putting them in cages for five months. Well, you know what's violent? How is that not Antifa violent, Kim? Is violent. Kim, how is that not Black violent? Black Lives Matter is violent. That is not violent. Pam oh, my God. Kim, I can't even. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm not going to continue. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's up? Hi, Tom. Of course, you see that Kim didn't even want to answer your questions or listen to you. And that's the difference, because a liberal couldn't call one of the conservative shows and have, even have this discussion. Right, Tom? That's been my experience. <laughs> yes. They don't even realize that. So I just wanted to say, Tom, several conversations ago, I mentioned to you that a young generation of people were being influenced by Trump, just as they were influenced by JFK and Obama. 
Yes. So now we are seeing the manifestation, the hateful manifestation of that influence. Yeah, these 16 and, and 17 year olds were 15 and 16, 14, 15, 16 when Trump came into office, 13 and 14 when he started running. Forgive me the interruption, Pam. Back to you. That's okay. So now here we are with Covington. We all have our individual space. This young man had no problem coming into the space of the elder yep. and just staring him down. And then it appeared to me that they all surrounded him. So, Tom, I appreciate, I've always said this to you, I appreciate the way you discuss racism, hatred, and everything that comes from it. And I'm always one saying that the burden of ending racism, eradicating racism, is on the white community. I've also said, Tom, that the clergy, the white clergy, they are not doing enough. Now, I don't know if this particular school, Catholic school, belongs to an order, so with, I don't know what the cardinal, bishop, or even the pope at this point needs to intercede. And for me, that MAGA hat, maggot, I'm saying, is a symbolism of hate and racism. Yeah. That's what it is for me. Well, and that's the point. I mean, if you ask a Jew how they feel when somebody stands in front of them with a swastika, I think you can fairly predict that. If you ask an African-American how they feel when somebody stands in a Klan uniform in front of them, I think you can predict that. And what you're validating for me, Pam, right now is that people of color feel that very similar way when they see a MAGA hat, if I'm getting that right. And if the assumption I'm making about who you are is correct, forgive me if it's wrong. You're getting that absolutely right. And let me state, I don't speak for all black people, but let me say this also, let me be clear about this, even when I see black people wear that hat, it still represents the same for me. So I don't care who wears it. I don't like it. It's a symbolism of hate for me. Yeah, and I think it's getting more and more solid as that. I mean, the positions are hardening, and increasingly, I believe, Pam, going forward, the people that you see wearing these maggot hats are going to be the people who are proud of their racism. They're not just, you know, not just Republicans. I just retweeted a tweet from my buddy Joe Madison, a colleague of mine who's on SiriusXM, in which he's suggesting that it's time for the TSA to basically pull a plug on this government shutdown. He says, listen up, TSA employees. The leaders of our country aren't going to fix this right now. You have to make an impact. So I'm proposing a mass sick out in Atlanta right after the Super Bowl. That should wake them up. You know, it's kind of a parallel to what I was saying the other day that, you know, you don't have to shut down the airports, just shut down the pre-lines, the first class, the speedy lines, spot on. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 